Let's pray. Lord God, our souls cling to the dust. Give us life according to your word. When we told, when we told of our, our ways, you, you answered us. Teach us your statutes. Help us understand the way of your precepts. And we will meditate on your wondrous works. Our soul melts away for sorrow because of our sin and because of the way that this world works. So we pray that you would strengthen us according to your word. Put false ways far from us and graciously teach us your law, that fullness of your truth that comes to us in the law and in the gospel. We have chosen the way of faithfulness because you were faithful to us and you are at work in us. We set your rules before, before us so that they are always before our, our minds and they, 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 they're constantly going through us that we would live in them. We cling to your testimonies, to your promises, to the accounts of your salvation, O Lord. Let us not be put to shame. We will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge our hearts with faith and hope and love. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wanted to, uh, to go backwards just for a moment. Uh, I wanted to touch on something that I don't think that I covered last time from Romans 1, uh, 11 through 15. And, and just to, uh, to refresh uh, where we were at there, uh, 11 through 15 says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift of, to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, for I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Um, this whole idea that, that Paul wants to actually physically be present, I think is really important. Um, we talked about you know, the, uh, the relationship that was there and uh, the, the need for that contact between people, uh, the, the importance of that last time. But I don't think I talked about Gnosticism, did I? So there was a, a heresy. It, it, it's probably the first heresy, uh, maybe even the first heresy of all heresies, uh, that we call Gnosticism. It comes from the, the Greek word um, to know, and it, it kind of has this idea of, oh, I have this secret knowledge. And, uh, and, and Gnosticism has a really strong preference for things spiritual over things physical. And I think that part of what Paul is getting at as, as he talks about wanting to be there with them and to be able to see them face to face and impart this, this spiritual blessing. But it's not enough to just write a letter. He's got to be there. Uh, it is actually a pushback against this, uh, th this heresy called Gnosticism uh, or, or some version of it. Uh, so in Gnosticism, the goal is to be 
pure in spirit so that then you can become one with God who is spirit and then the physical body is seen as corrupt. And so we must shuck this mortal coil in order to have unity with God. Uh, if some of this sounds a little bit Star Wars-ish, that's what I mean when I say this is like one of the oldest heresies that there is. This idea that we want to get rid of the body in order to be truly spiritual so that then we can become one with God. You know, I mean, think, think about, you know, in uh, The Empire Strikes Back, or is it, no, it's Return of the Jedi, when Yoda dies, right? And he just kind of dissolves. Or he, actually, in, in New Hope, the first one, you know, Darth Vader strikes Obi-Wan down, and what happens? Doesn't cut him in half, he just disappears. Because, well, who needs a body when I can become one with the Force? And it, 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 it's not exactly one for one, but it's very similar. That the whole idea is that we want to become one with this overarching mind. And we say it this way, that we leave our, our bodies behind so that our spirit can be one with God. Well, the truth is that God made us as binary beings. We are physical and spiritual. It's not that you are a spirit who's trapped in a body. You know, we are people who recognize that God has made us complete with both parts. So you go to the funeral and, and you know, the body's laying there in the casket and maybe you've said this, no offense if you have, uh, you know, or maybe you've heard this, she's not there. That's just her body. Um, I'm sorry, excuse me, no. That is her. At least part of her, right? Um, th this, is, this is one of the reasons that we do funerals. Is that we recognize this is kind of essential to, to who I am, this, this body. And, and so being physically present is a really important part of, uh, of our life together because this is, this is who we are. So death is actually, a, in a sense, a violation of God's design in that the, the spirit is ripped from the body and God has a place where, you know, after we die, that we rest as spirit in his presence. But that's not the end. On the last day, Jesus returns, and the dead are raised. And our spirits are reunited with a new body, a whole body, a holy body. You know, so um, this, this then connects to, well, it connects to Christmas. Because Jesus, true God, completely, purely spirit, comes in a in a body you know and some people look at that and they're like well that was just perfunctory he had to come in a body so that he could die for us no it's not just utilitarian this flesh that we have it is good it is part of God's design for us 
And as we've gone through the COVID stuff, this is actually something that has weighed heavily on my mind and in my prayers that we don't lose sight of the importance of incarnation, that we don't lose sight of the importance of being physically present. Um, I, I, am completely, I completely embrace that we use technology to help people to be connected from a distance and, and that this provides a service. The word goes out and, and you know, it does not return empty. I, I am, I'm good with all of that. But I've, I've long been concerned that that becomes an implied message that physical presence doesn't matter. Whereas Paul is very clear that physical presence is important. It matters because we are physical beings. Does that, does that make sense? You know, I was going to say, you know, am I crazy? But those two things could, it could make sense and I could be crazy. Um, but uh, just that, that, that's part of what's on my mind, you know, in, in those verses. You know, as he's talking about, I want to be there with you. But I can't, so the next best thing is I'm writing you a letter. And maybe that's kind of part of where we're at. You know, some people feel like they can't be here. And so maybe the next best thing is, you know, we're recording this, we're streaming video in order to help people to have some connection. And we look forward to a day when we can be physically present with each other again. So, all right, new stuff. Romans 1, 16 through 17. This is all I want to get through today. In, in terms of verses, this is, like, this, this is like the smallest amount of verses that I want to get through in a day. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then we put in parentheses behind there, in big letters, alone. And we'll come back to that, because that word alone is not Paul. Um, but uh, but we'll, 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 we'll chew on that in a little bit here. This passage changed the world. These two verses changed the course of history. These are the verses that Luther read and his mind was blown. Because up to this point, um, he had a whole different idea about what the righteousness of God meant. This was the verse that helped him to understand the gospel. It helped him to understand uh, the work of faith in, in a person's life. And, uh, um, and this, this is where the Reformation really gets cranking. You know, so we get kind of you know, excited about October 31st, 1517, because Luther you know, kind of thumbed his nose at the Pope and uh, put those 95 theses up, right? Except, you know, he wasn't really thumbing his nose at the Pope. Uh, he, he wanted to have a, a little scholarly debate and a conversation. And it started some things. 
But in terms of the substance of the Reformation, this rediscovery of the gospel and its full potency, that comes as Luther is teaching on Romans, as he's preparing and he's dealing with the original texts. Because up to this point, they, they mostly did their studies in the Vulgate. And he's going back to the Greek for the New Testament, Hebrew for the Old Testament. And he hits this passage and he's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This idea of righteousness is not what I've been taught all along. Because up to this point, his idea of righteousness has been completely and totally performative. It's about what he does. And Luther, you know, again, truth and crazy, not necessarily separate from each other, right? You know, he, he is obsessed with the fact that, that he is not performing at the level that God demands. And here's the crazy thing. When you're dealing with Martin Luther, this guy's a genius. We think that he was probably manic depressive. You know, and so when he's on that manic side, boom. Come into my office sometime and look at the top row of books. It's Luther's works. There are over... I want to say there are 52 volumes that are up there. They've translated some more, um, and there's still a whole bunch more in German that hasn't been translated. And I mean, it's ridiculous. The guy's performance is crazy. You know, and he's, he just lived the life. He strove and he tried, and, and, and you know, I mean, if anybody was doing it, you know, boy, it's Marty. But he recognizes that his righteousness does not live up to God's righteousness. And then as he's going through this, he's like, wait. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith? What does that mean? The righteous shall live by faith? What's that all about? And it completely transforms everything. And, you know, even that bit that he wrote... Uh, there was this, this young guy by the name of Charles Wesley. You know, if you know any Methodists, they kind of owe their heritage to him. He reads what Luther wrote about this passage, and it says that his, he says, my heart was strangely warm. Now, when it says it was strangely warm, that doesn't mean like, ooh, that was weird. Um, it means from the outside, that he had like this spiritual experience that God worked in him, and he was like, oh, the truth of the gospel is here. And, and everything starts changing, you know, after Luther goes after this. Because then he, he is not a, a monk who um, has some beef with indulgences. He has become a, a priest, a professor who recognizes that oh, we've lost something in God's truth. And he becomes compelled to teach this and to push it and to drive for it. Everything else, he kind of, you know, gets pushed in these different directions. After this, he's all in to teach this and to make sure that anybody that he can share this message with hears it. So, Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
Why would anybody be ashamed of the gospel? I, I mean, that seems kind of crazy, right? You ever, you ever think about that? Okay, I'm sure this has never happened to anybody in this room. But have you ever been in one of those situations where you kind of feel like, I should talk to this person about Jesus, but I'm afraid of what they're going to think of me if I do. Or they're going to, you know, say something awful to me if I do. Or people are going to think I'm cra crazy if I do. So maybe this idea of being ashamed of the gospel isn't so strange. Um, as Paul's writing this, one of the things that we have to realize is that crucifixion was a very shameful death. This was the death of criminals. This is not, um, boy, this is not the, the victory story of, a, uh, of any god in any of the, the myriad of gods of this world. You know, so the idea that, you know, you worship somebody who was crucified, that's ridiculous. And Jesus was, you know, by Roman standards anyhow, an absolute nobody. Because, you know, not only is he from this backwater part of a backwater country, he, uh, he was crucified. He's a criminal. He, he, you know, he's the scum of the earth. Or, we're going to talk more about this uh, on Wednesday, but consider the Beatitudes. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. If you turn there and look at that. Because in, in Matthew chapter 5, we hear about all, all of this great stuff about what it means to be blessed, right? Blessed are, blessed are, blessed... Oh, I'm sorry. Blessed. You know, we've got to put that inflection on, on the end. Um, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Anybody signing on? Like, you know, yeah, I, I want this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. The kingdom of God has a different order. It has a different logic to it than uh, um, the kingdom of this world. And... Even as people who grew up in the church the logic and the order of the world still kind of clings to us. It informs the way that we think. You know, look at our entertainment. 
Look at how we, we understand our politics. We like winners. We like power. We like pleasure. And so Jesus is so counter all of this that maybe as a Roman citizen, I would even go so far as to say as an American, it would be pretty easy to be ashamed of these teachings. Teachings of humility, teachings of self-sacrifice. You know, it goes against the world. Uh, Luther wrote about this idea in uh, a document called uh, the Heidelberg Disputation. I want to say this was 1518. So 1517, you've got the posting of the 95 Theses. Luther is becoming famous, and uh, people want to take him down a peg. And uh, one of the guys for the job was a man by the name of Johann Eck. And, uh, and he challenges the Wittenbergers, the other professors, and Luther to a uh, debate. And Luther just comes in and he eviscerates this guy because that's what Luther does. Um, he is not, Luther was not a nice man. I don't know if you know this. Uh, he, he, was, he was something. Um, so Eck is a doctor. And uh, so he's got the DR dot in front of his name. And uh, Luther would call him Drek. Instead of Dr. Eck, he just, hey, Drek. And that's funny to us, you know, that just sounds weird. Except in German, Drek means trash. Yeah. And as part of this, uh, as part of this, he talks about the theology of the cross and the theology of glory. The theology of the cross calls a thing what it is. It recognizes sin and it recognizes brokenness in the world and it recognizes the weakness of humanity. The theology of glory is kind of, well, the on steroids version of that is like Joel Osteen. You know, you know if you have your positive attitude, you know, you've got it in you to overcome and, and all of this. And Luther took this strong stand and said, nope, we're broken, and the only way we're getting through this is God's salvation. Can you see why that might not be appealing to somebody? It's like you're in control of yourself. Yes, it is a control, a power issue. And I think that this goes back to the very first sin you know, who is God? Is it me? And I reach up and I take the fruit for myself to be like God, knowing good and evil. Or is God God and I'm kind of dependent? That's one of our virtues here in America, right? Being dependent? No. But that, that is kind of the, the, the state that God leaves us in. And for the Romans, that whole idea would be absolutely offensive. So as Luther deals with this idea of the righteousness of God, uh, if you read that article, you, you will read this. He says, I hated the righteousness of God. Because he saw it as this weight that always hung over him. Um, Luther had seen the righteousness of God as, as a performative standard. And is that wrong? 
Is there a sense that God says, this is righteousness, live in it? Do these things? Walk in these ways? You know, go back to Psalm 119. Just that little bit that we, we read there. You know, give me life according to your word. Uh, teach me your statutes. Uh, make me understand the way of your precepts. Um, want strength according to your word. Graciously teach me your law. Uh, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. There is an ethic that's involved here in, in this righteousness. But what Luther realized is that there's righteousness and there's righteousness. That it's not all performative. But there's a different kind of righteousness that's being talked about here. So, we're going to use some philosophical terms to, to get at what we're talking about. Um, for Luther, he saw this righteousness of God as what the philosophers or the theologians would call active righteousness or formal righteousness. And formal or, or active righteousness is all about ethics and it's about behavior and it's about conduct. In short, it's all about the law and keeping the law and doing what the law says. So Luther, you know, he's around in the 1500s, but there were lots of people, lots of Christians before him. There were a lot of brilliant minds before him who wrote about God's word. And there were a group of, of theologians who were called the scholastic theologians. And uh, they, they start at around 1000 AD with a guy by the name of Peter Lombard. And the high point is in the 1400s with a guy by the name of Thomas Aquinas. And that, that's a name you may have heard somewhere. Um, uh, he wrote a book called the Summa Theologica, which is like, it's the summation of, of, of all theology. This guy was so brilliant um, that you know, at, at the time, you would have a scribe write, and you would speak, you know, the, uh, what you, you want written down. But because his mind is working so fast, he would say something to this scribe for one book, one part of the Summa, and then he would say something to this guy for another part of the Summa, and then he would go to a different part of the Summa here, and a fourth part of the Summa over here. He's literally writing four books at once in his mind, speaking it to people walking through. This, this, this is the kind of guy that we're, we're talking about when we talk about Thomas Aquinas. And he taught that there was a, a bit of, of divine spark that was left in us from creation. And that every person has a bit of that divine spark in us that if, if properly tended, could flare up into deeds of righteousness. In other words, you've got it in you to be righteous. Yeah. And the idea was that, you know, the word and the sacraments, they, they would infuse grace into you, kind of like, um, well, it's kind of like putting fuel in your car. And it would give you the ability to, to be empowered to be a person to do God's righteousness. 
How does that fit with your experience? How does that fit with what the scriptures teach even more broadly? I think we want to be in control. Yeah. We don't want to let go. That's the hard part. This is, this is what Luther identifies as that theology of glory. There is something that I can contribute to my salvation. There's something that I can do to make God look to me and love me and accept me. And answer my prayers. And, well, and that, that's right. It all becomes performative. God answers my prayers because of what I do, which is paganism, by the way. Right? I offer the right sacrifice, and then gods, the gods don't smite me. And, and maybe if I offer a really good sacrifice, they do something nice. It's paganism. And it just kind of seeps in. Because at heart, that's the brokenness that's within us. So this teaching, in essence, is what we call, more theology terms, sorry, uh, synergism. It comes from the Greek... Uh, sin, which means with, uh, S-U-N, uh, ergo, to work. You've heard of ergonomics. You know, these are things that you do to, to help your work. Um, so synergism is, is you work with. Um, and it's a false teaching that says that we work with God to perform good works and to display righteousness in our lives and thereby contribute something to our salvation, be it ever so small. Now, I, I want to be, be really careful here because as Christians baptized the spirit within you, he's working in your life to shape you, form you, transform you. Are there times as Christians that we make choices to do what is right and to do deeds of righteousness? Yeah. In the power of the spirit? And, and what, is, what, is, what does that gain you? What does that earn you? When you do the right thing, you know, in, in God's economy, what does that earn you? I like to think of it that makes you feel better about yourself. Say that again? It makes you feel better about yourself. Okay, it makes you feel better about yourself? Okay. That, that can be valuable. It keeps us uh, more confident. It might help us to be more conscious. Okay. But in terms of our, our relationship with God, does it earn us anything? No. No. Everything that we have has come to us by his grace. Even the fact that the spirit is within us and he has worked this life in us that has allowed us to choose. So these good works are gifts that God has given. It talks about this in, in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 starts with you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And by verse 10, you know, 8, 9, and 10, you know, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is a gift of God, lest any person should boast. You know, you've been saved by grace. Um, and, uh, and he says, for we are God's workmanship. You know, and we do good works that were created in advance for us. And so these good works become gifts that God gives to us because you are his saved people. And we do them because of his salvation at work in our lives, not to earn that salvation. I, I think sometimes when um, you're praying, you know, whatever, God comes up with something you didn't think to pray about. And yes. It's sort of like, that was God. Yep. That, that happened. You know, it's just 
Yeah, God will bring things to our hearts for prayer, absolutely. You know, this is a, this is a, a dynamic relationship. But Luther, Luther was not fooled. When he was younger, he was. But after reading this passage, he, he, he knew his sin too deeply. It was clear to him that, that he contributed absolutely nothing to his salvation. And in truth, this drove him to despair. You know, um, he would go to confession multiple times in a day. He drove his confessor nuts. His confessor told him one time, Martin, go actually sin and then come back. <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, it, 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 he was tormented by this. And, uh, and so finding this message of the gospel just absolutely transformed him. So he's not ashamed of the gospel. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. We don't need to be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. You know, I already mentioned, you know, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. Um, John chapter 1 verse 12 says, To all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The reception and then become children. Uh, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who was sent. John 6, verse 29. Uh, those are Jesus' words. So this, this whole idea that this salvation is for everyone who believes, really, it's a, it's a mind-blowing thing. And this is where that word alone comes in. Because Luther literally jots in the margin of his Bible the word sola, alone. And it's one of those famous solas, you know, that, that we hold to. Probably the first, right? Sola fide. By faith alone. By faith alone, we receive this righteousness. And he's, he's going to, Paul is going to continue to, to, to work on this idea. But in, in terms of... Um, of our theology as Lutherans, this whole idea of faith became just very much the, the, the key theme of the Reformation. That this is a righteousness that is received not by anything that we do, but completely as faith, like hands out, receptive spirituality that God gives to us. So, later, didn't tell anybody to bring your catechism, but later, pull out your catechism and, and check this out. Start with the Ten Commandments, because that's where Luther starts, right? You know, our relationship with God in the law. And uh, he starts with the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. And he says, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Trust, faith, right? And then all the rest of the commandments he goes through, we should fear and love God so that. But it's like the word trust has disappeared. And then you get to the close of the commandments, that part about I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God that I never liked when I was a kid. He says, God threatens to punish all who break these commandments. Therefore, we should fear his wrath. Oh, we got fear. And he promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments. Therefore, we should also love. Fear love. And trust in him and gladly do what he commands. 
He starts with this idea of faith. He ends with faith in the Ten Commandments. You get into the Apostles' Creed. Well, the Apostles' Creed, the word creed itself means I believe. So faith is, is the, 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 the key thread through the Ten Commandments, through the Apostles' Creed, in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father. With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true Father. To believe that he is our true and loving Father. Baptism's next. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And then under confession, Luther writes, confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, and second, that we receive absolution, that is, forgiveness, from the pastor as from God himself, not doubting, but firmly believing that it, by it our sins are forgiven by God in heaven. And then the Lord's Supper, one of my favorite parts of the catechism. Luther asks, who's worthy to receive this gift? He says, that person is truly worthy and well-prepared who has faith in these words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. So even as Luther is trying to pass the faith on to teach this in the, you know, the, the Lutheran churches, the churches of the Reformation, the key theme is this whole idea of faith. That all of this is by faith from first to last. Because in the gospel, uh, the righteousness of God is revealed. And there's a little bit of strangeness here in terms of what exactly this says in the Greek. Um, does it say uh, from faith for faith, from faith to faith, from faith into faith? And as we look at that, it's like Paul can't say the word faith enough. He can't emphasize strongly enough that this righteousness comes by faith. And this is where Luther then says, alone. That it's all about faith. And the idea that the righteousness of God is revealed or made known completely and only by faith was absolutely revolutionary at the time. So, instead of an active righteousness, as the scholastic theologians would have called it, what Luther is actually seeing here is that this is an imputed righteousness. It's a revealed righteousness. It's a passive righteousness. It's a receptive righteousness. For my money, the best example of this is baseball before they ruined it with the instant replay. Because in baseball, when I was a kid, actually just, you know, just a few years ago, if the umpire said you're safe, you're safe. And it didn't matter how many times, you know, the, the, uh, the, the TV booth looked at it and said, oh, the umpire messed that one up. Because look, the ball got there ahead of him. No, what mattered was what the umpire said. What the umpire saw. And this is parallel in the Christian faith in that we all know that we are sinners. 
We all know our unrighteousness. And yet God looks at you and says, righteous, for Jesus' sake. And the only way to receive that is by trusting what he says. We trust what he says about us in Christ. And then that is what we are. We become truly righteous. Maybe not in our deeds, but in our relationship with God. For Jesus' sake. And, and he's going to explore this more through the book, uh, through, the, through the letter, through Romans. And, uh, um, and so this gets us back to the question that we started with. What, what is the righteousness of God? And as we look at this text, it tells us that the righteousness of God, is it God's holiness? You know, this is usually seen as revealed in God's judgment not in his grace. We see that the righteousness of God is something that is revealed. It's something that that we don't naturally know, that we cannot, uh, it cannot be understood or, or, or received by our efforts. It's from faith. It's only received by faith, and therefore it excludes performance. And this righteousness that that is revealed by faith, it gives life. God's judgments bring death and damnation, that righteousness. But this righteousness makes us alive. You know, Roman life uh, was was regulated by, by a form of very strict civic righteousness. Now we're now we're using it in a third way. We have God's righteousness in terms of the law and, and what is right in, in what we might call natural law. We also now have this imputed righteousness, this revealed righteousness that's received by faith. In, in Roman world, they had what they called, what we would call civic righteousness. And we still have this. You know, we look at people completely separate from anything that they might believe and say, that's a good person, Right? That's civic righteousness. They're doing what what the the society thinks is right. Well, the Romans had a a form of civic righteousness that was highly performative, and they understood that that some things were right and some things were wrong. And they they believed that this was revealed to them by the gods. Um, Some actions are righteous and some are unrighteous. And Paul's going to explore the distinction of, of righteousness and unrighteousness as he gets into this letter and he's going to show them and us a different kind of righteousness. Now, why is it important to understand that Paul is speaking of imputed righteousness as opposed to active righteousness? Why, why is it important to understand that he's talking about this gift of faith rather than the things that we do. What do you think? It's about Christ. It's about Christ. 
And he's bringing it back to that message over and over again. Yeah. You know, it's such a challenge to depend completely on God for your grace and for faith. Uh, it just ought to be something you can earn, but it isn't. Isn't that, I mean, the, the rest of the world, almost every other aspect of your life, you, you earn your status, right? But it also proclaims the power of God when you give that over. Yes. When it comes to righteousness, people tend to view it kind of as on a continuum, you know, between two poles. You know, one is that they are righteous, or at least more righteous than the people around them. And then that's really rooted in their behavior and the things that they do. And on the other end, then, uh, is that they are unrighteous, as is evidenced by the things that they do, as evidenced by their deeds. The common theme is really deeds, right? I'm righteous because I do the right things. I'm not righteous because I don't do enough of the right deeds. And this is part of the confusion regarding the righteousness of God, this idea of an active righteousness versus an imputed righteousness. And it's something that I think is really ingrained in us, that we, we understand deeds and we don't understand gift to the degree that God is, is working with us here. So I, I want to do a quick run through, and I want you to notice how Paul is setting up this letter with these verses. That he, he's really about a righteousness that comes by faith. So as we finish up chapter 1 and get into chapter 2, hopefully next week, um, we will see that he's going to explore God's wrath toward unrighteousness. And it's going to be performative. He's going to confront uh, the readers, he's going to confront us with acts of deeds uh, of unrighteousness. And then he's going to look to a righteousness that is, um, the Latin phrase is extra nos, uh, it is outside of us. And it's this righteousness that he's talking about. It's a righteousness that is revealed. And he's going to really hit that hard in, in Romans chapter 3. And then he's going to show righteousness as it's received by faith. And he's going to give examples of, of what it looks like to receive righteousness by faith. He's going to show righteousness as a new beginning. And in Romans chapter 6, he's going to investigate this whole thought of you know, being connected to Christ's death in order to be part of his resurrection and to have a new life. And that righteousness is connected to that. He's going to show how we struggle with righteousness as sinners. And we find that we are at the same time saints, completely and totally forgiven, declared, imputed righteousness, and sinners by our deeds and act actions. And that both of those statements are true. You are righteous and you are unrighteous. And that you live in this tension all the time. And I think that Romans 7 
where he really digs into this, it is, it's one of the high points of this book where he, he's really wrestling with this reality that God says you're righteous, but my deeds say that I'm not. And what do I do with that? And he brings that into Romans chapter 8, uh, that righteousness depends fully on God in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that it's the lack of faith that brings us into unrighteousness before God, no matter how actively righteous, no matter how good our deeds are. It's chapters 9 through 11, where he really kind of riffs on that. And then 12 through 15, he talks about imputed righteousness leading to a change in our lives. That this imputed righteousness, this righteousness that comes as a gift, actually shapes us and transforms us so that our deeds become righteous. But it's not a righteousness to earn this righteousness in God's sight. It's you've been given the righteousness in God's sight, and so now we do the things that are righteous in God's sight. So, questions, comments, before uh, I give you your homework. Isn't it amazing how it fits in, like, it, just even today, like, with, like, say, the cancel culture, like, pastor, you could be a pastor because you ran a red light yesterday, you shouldn't be a pastor. You know, I mean, it's just, and this actually brings it back to life that, what, yeah, he's going to sin, or things are going to happen. Um, it's just amazing how it comes to today, too, you know? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the whole cancel culture thing, I find some incredible parallels to the Puritans that came to America, you know, and kind of helped to found the country. You know, how pure do you need to be in order to be part of the group? Oh, you know, you don't have the right doctrine, you better go to Rhode Island. You know, um, and, and there's some of that that is neatly paralleled today. Oh, you're not pure enough, you're out. You, you know, canceled. Anything else? <laughs> well, I think that you're touching on something else there too. That uh, I'm about no, I am. I am too. That, that um, American religion. Uh, I, I think that we have taken kind of a Judeo-Christian creed and wrapped it in the American flag, and that uh, a lot of our religion. Um, becomes more about our politic than about what God's word actually says. And I think that, I think that there's plenty of room in God's word to be offensive to everybody um, in, in terms of politics. And, um, and I don't think that any of the parties uh, here in the United States or anywhere in the world really cornered the market on God's truth. And that means that as Christians, and I'm jumping books to Peter now. We live as aliens and strangers. And that we are never quite at home until Jesus comes again. And I think that's important when we deal with these things. That there is a logic, an order in the world, and the kingdom of God is not the same thing. And we are citizens in both. 
saints and sinners. And how do you live that? So, all right. So if you haven't had an opportunity to read Luther's comments about righteousness, I do think that they are instructive. Uh, There are copies of it over there. Um, Help yourself. Um, Again, uh, have a conversation with somebody about something you learned, remembered, or you found important in this uh, session. Uh, Educationally speaking, you know, it's one thing to hear something. It's another thing to speak it to somebody else. And, uh, you know, it, it's different parts of your brain and it's different modes of, uh, of understanding. And, uh, um, you know, I remember having a class at the seminary. The professor says, you, 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 you don't really know things until you're teaching them. You know, it's taking it kind of that, that next step. You know, it's, it's a, trying to apply it. So I encourage you to have conversations about this. Uh, if you felt that there was something in here worth your time, uh, share this. Uh, one of the things, do you know that the church has a new website? I just saw it. Yeah, I just saw it this week. Yeah. So check out the church's website. Uh, the address is there for you, uh, gloriadayhudson.org. Uh, go to the About tab on the top and scroll way down to Recommended Sites. Uh, it's right below, well, it's a little bit below the staff pictures. And then in that list of recommended sites, there's one that says Pastor's Blog. Click on that, and uh, you will see the handout from today, and uh, you know, uh, there will be the audio recording, and this is the place that you could go, like if you miss a class and you wanna catch up, that's where it will be. Um, and there'll be other fun stuff out there too. So, all right, let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the righteousness that comes by faith. And as we study this, uh, this letter that, uh, that your spirit inspired Paul to write, we ask that you would help us to live in that righteousness that is given to us for Jesus' sake. And that as we live in that righteousness, that you would transform our lives so that our behavior becomes righteous according to your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.